I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 18. Once again, we're considering, uh, continuing our study in Revelation 17, 1 through 19, 10. That's a big chunk of Scripture, and you know that we sometimes go slowly, even we have a small chunk of Scripture. So you can imagine uh, what these weeks are, are seeming like. But we're doing this under the title of the section, The Fall of Babylon and the Exaltation of the Bride. Our, our focus has been on the fall of Babylon but eventually we will see that exaltation of the bride when we come to chapter 19. And last week we began to look closely at chapter 18. Chapter 18 is this poetic description of various reactions to the destruction of Babylon, this, this city in the tribulation period or system of government that holds this mesmerizing influence over the people of the world. We don't know exactly what shape it's going to take, but the the word Babylon was a code for this uh, oppressive government that stood against God. The Jews were using it even in their day, and it's used here in the book of Revelation. When Babylon is brought down in a single day in this massive, fiery destruction, there's shock and awe all over the world People globally, loud wailing by those who profited from Babylon. But before this loud lamentation begins, there is a voice from heaven, perhaps the voice of the Lord himself, that calls out a warning to believers in Christ. And we find this warning in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 18, where we are going to focus our attention this morning. The voice says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, here's the voice, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, the sins of Babylon, who's being destroyed. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. This is This is God's warning to his people. Get out of Babylon. And this warning assumes something. You know what it assumes? It assumes that the Lord's people can be drawn to Babylon. That they can be implicated in Babylon's sins and in Babylon's judgment. And the Lord says, flee the city. Do you realize that the Lord God has been separating his people from one thing or another ever since the Garden of Eden. God told Adam, I'm giving you every tree of the garden. There's nothing that's off limits to you, but I want you to stay away from that one tree. And when God called Abram, the first thing he did was separate him from his pagan roots, right? He he told him in Genesis 12, come out of of the city, Ur, of the Chaldeans, to a place where he would show him, where he would, he would make of him in that other place, separate from where he was, he would make him a great nation with a greater city. When that nation was formed, the nation of Israel, it was a nation actually defined by its separation from all of the surrounding pagan nations. God called his own special possession Israel. God called them holy unto him, that is separated unto him. And the rise and fall of Israel in the pages of the Old Testament is directly tied to one thing and one thing only, how separated Israel remained from the surrounding pagan nations and unto their God. 
In other words, if their hearts were repulsed by the sin and idolatry of those nations on the one hand, while their hearts were drawn in love to their God on the other. Their history is written in that principle. Today, the Lord's church is defined in the same way. In fact, the Apostle Peter uses the same language that God uses of his children, uh, Israel, in the Old Testament when he speaks of the church. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, notice, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. From one thing to another, believers are defined as those who have been called out of one place into another place, out of darkness and into light. We're going to observe the Lord's table this morning when I'm finished here in a few moments, just a few moments. And we will read the traditional passage we always read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is explaining the significance of the table and where he issues a warning to those who approach the table in the wrong way. You see, there's this idea of separation built right into the Lord's table. But you know, 1 Corinthians 11 is not the first place in the letter of, of, to the Corinthians where Paul brings up the warning about the Lord's table, that the principles actually come earlier in the letter. And then when we get to chapter 10, Paul draws, draws several conclusions about the Lord's table, including this one I'm showing you in 1 Corinthians 10, 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul is referring to the culture of idol worship that was, was rank in the city of Corinth. He's saying that there are demons associated with those idols. And he's telling these Corinthian believers who were saved out of that culture that when you're drinking wine in their rituals or eating from their tables, you're participating with demons. You see, he's saying that the church, which is the body of Christ, made up of, of believers in him, is to be distinct from the world. He's saying, when you come to Christ, you came out of the world and into the church. And we profane the table. We, we, we destroy what the table means when we are living, as it were, with one foot in Babylon and one foot in the church. So it's not surprising at all that even in the context of the severe judgment falling upon the earth and Babylon is being destroyed, that there's a call to separate, to get out of the city, this culture, this system of sin and evil values. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that I asked four questions. We, we actually, this is the second time we've been looking at this text. We asked four questions that designed to help us appreciate what is going on in, in these words, in this call to Babylon. First, we ask the question, what are the sins of Babylon? The sins that he says are heaped high as heaven, that God has remembered. What are these sins? Well, briefly, we saw that there is not a whole list of the typical terrible sins that are normally associated with God's judgment in the Bible. The tribulation period will, of course, be an intense time of moral darkness. That is for sure. All the crime and immorality and wickedness that we have going on in our world today, the dial will be turned up to 11. It's going to be intense during that time. In fact, you notice that Hosea was focusing on idol worship, but he also mentioned all these other evils that associate with 
our abandonment of God. But these are not the sins named in these chapters. The sins for which Babylon is being judged is expressed in these terms. Spiritual immorality that the Greek text consistently refers to as porneia. Wanton self-indulgence, and the text uses the word luxury to indicate that. And what I call Christian genocide, that is, they will hunt and kill those who follow Christ during that, that time period worldwide. And taken together, these sins give us a really comprehensive picture of the kind of thing that's going on in, in the world, especially in this Babylon, underneath Babylon's influence, whatever Babylon is, under their influence during the tribulation period. Spiritual immorality or porneia refers to the unfaithful abandonment of God, just like we read about in Hosea. Like an unfaithful wife who leaves her husband for the arms of another man. And wanton self-indulgence refers to what the world is embracing instead of God, namely the treasures of this world. It refers to a lust after these treasures, a culture in which everyone is rushing greedily to amass lavish wealth and all of the immorality and idolatry that goes with it. Now, we see, see, we see people certainly today abandoning God for money in the world, and, 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 and we see this in our culture all the time. It, it, it's a, not a new sin. But the point is that in this Babylon, whatever form of governing influence that this takes, the denial and revoking of God will be a governing policy. And that is why the third sin makes complete sense. Christian genocide. The only people left in the world at this time who will stand against this kind of lifestyle that abandons God for the things of this world are genuine believers which means that they will be considered enemies of the state and must be eliminated. I'm not taking this just from this text. We've already seen this, such as in Revelation chapter 13, this active uh, hunt and pursual and, and killing of believers. So these three sins explain much about the dire situation taking place in the world at that time. And this should really cause us to think. Because the reason God takes Babylon down is not for a litany of the typical sins that we think of when people deserve God's wrath. At the heart of the wicked Babylonian culture was a sin much more fundamental, adultery against the creator to whom we owe our very life, for whom we were created to know and love with all our heart, abandoning this God to give our heart to temporal things. So those are the sins of Babylon. But this morning, that leads us to a second question. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. How would we take part in the sins of Babylon? We had better know the answer to that question. How are we going to heed the warning from God unless we know what he is telling us to avoid? So how do we know when we are following Babylonian-like behavior? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, how this warning is phrased. Notice it says, lest you take part in her sins. The word take part translates a Greek word. Some of you I know have the Greek New Testament on your devices or your lap and you're fact-checking me all the time about this. So that's good, that's good. But if you're looking at that word, you notice it's a very familiar word. It's a Greek word that means to have 
fellowship with. Some of you have been taught what that word fellowship is in the Greek language. It's the word koinonia, to have something in common. In fact, the Greek language of the New Testament is written with is called koine Greek. It means common Greek. He says, not common to me. Yeah, but it was common all over the world at the time it was written. Koinonia is to have something in common. Something, some, you're fellowshipping with that person. You know the same thing. Come out of her, my people, lest you fellowship with her sins. Lest you share in her sins. Lest you partake of her sins. We could say, lest you have a love for those sins in common with the citizens of that city, Babylon. You see, the way it is phrased, these are not the sins of God's people initially. They are the sins of the people of Babylon, but God's people can become complicit in those sins when they join in, when they begin to mimic those sins, when they begin to embrace the same values as the citizens of Babylon. When you were younger, maybe it wasn't so long ago, I don't know. Did you ever get in trouble because you did something wrong that you didn't plan to do when you started out? But you were with someone who had the idea and you went along with it, you're probably like, thanks, I thought I'd, I thought, thought I'd successfully forgotten that day in my life or that, that year or whatever it was. Maybe you didn't want to be a spoil sport or you didn't want to seem like a prude or you wanted to be accepted or maybe, frankly, you were captivated by the idea and you were like, let's see what happens. But one way or another, you began to fellowship with people who were doing wrong. You began to hold their sin in common with them. Some of you may remember, especially if you're one of our Michiganders in the congregation, that there's a group, there were a group of men arrested in the fall of 2020 for plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. I've never met any of these men, as you can imagine, but I kind of know who one of them is. The third one from the left, his mom and I grew up in the same youth group together, where my dad was the pastor. And I know through some inside information that this young man, who was not a believer at the time of this arrest, never set out to be involved in a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. He started hanging out with the wrong sorts of people, and someone in the group came up with this idea, and everybody else just slowly and surely kind of went along with it. Somebody invented the plan. Somebody else supplied the, the things that they needed to pull it off, and this young man was led step by step down a path toward this terrible end. But one or two of the men in this larger group turned out to be undercover FBI agents. So before the plan could be carried out, everyone involved was arrested and put into prison. And by the way, this story has a happy ending for this young man because this young man was not a believer, but the Lord got a hold of his life in prison. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. He's a believer today. And later, the state dropped all the charges against him because it was obvious to everybody and the judge that he had been groomed and led along in the whole plan, as some of his uh, buddies were as well. But you see, he was complicit in the sin because he was in fellowship with those who were devising evil. And that is why the Lord warns us also. Because when we live in Babylon, there's a lot of pressure to conform to Babylon, to adjust our thinking and our choices to the value of Babylon, to hold things in common with the citizens of Babylon. And all the while, we keep telling ourselves, we know we should love God supremely. 
and put his will first. And we feel a better, we feel better about our lack of zeal for God somehow because at least we can remember that we ought to be living this other way. But our affections are lured further and further away by the luxuries and opportunities of this life. You know, I told you last week that you can't read this section of, 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 of Revelation without thinking of another story that's in the Old Testament, Genesis 19 in particular, reminding here, us here in Revelation 18 of God's warning to get out of Babylon uh, reminds us of another warning to get out of a city. And that is God's warning to Lot, who was living in the city of Sodom. Why was Lot living in such a wicked city as Sodom? Well, he didn't start out that way. When Abraham and Lot were looking for places to locate their families and their possessions, Genesis 13.10 says that Lot saw the Jordan Valley was like the garden of the Lord. In other words, like Eden. His heart went after luxury. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was drawn to this luxurious place. So he went that direction. And verse 12 says that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, a notoriously wicked city. In fact, today, there's still sin named after the city of Sodom. Verse 13 says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. But but Lot is not actually living there. He's only moved his tent nearby the city. Later we learn, however, that the Lot ends up moving into the city of Sodom. In in Genesis 19.9, we learn that he was only going to live there for a short time. But once he moved in, he never left. Lot, who knew God, I mean, his, his uncle was Abraham, ended up living in Sodom. And we can only imagine the process that Lot went through in his mind to justify this decision. Perhaps the luxuries of the city were a draw to him, especially to his wife and maybe his two daughters. Lot was rich. He could afford to indulge in the luxuries of Sodom. Maybe it was the idea of being respected in the community. When we meet Lot in the first verse of chapter 19, you know where Lot is? Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. That means he had become respected, a leader in the community. But when the angels came to get Lot out of the city of Sodom, Lot does not want to leave. Genesis 19.15 says that the angels were urging him, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Get out of Sodom. But it says he lingered. Earlier in the chapter, we don't have time to go through all of chapter 19, it's pretty long. But earlier in the chapter, Lot had already tried to get his future son-in-laws out. His daughters were engaged to them to get out and escape the wrath of God. And they just laughed at him. Obviously, Lot had not impressed them as someone who could stand and talk about God's judgments. They were confused. They couldn't take him seriously. So in verse 16, the men, that is the angels in the story, literally seize Lot and his wife and his two daughters by the hand as an act of God's mercy upon them and dragged them out of the city and said, run for your lives. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And the sad story of Lot's life doesn't end there. As the Lord is raining sulfur and fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife looks back, her heart full of longing for the luxuries that are being destroyed, and she becomes a pillar of salt. And later in the chapter, Lot's daughters, now living in a cave with their father, 
Imagine how far they've fallen. Do something morally reprehensible. Since their fiancés have died in the judgment of Sodom, they make their father drunk so that he does not know what he is doing, and they bear children by their father, these daughters do. Now, when you think of Lot's situation, you might start to think, well, maybe he's not somebody who really knows God after all. I mean, he's basically become a terrible pagan at this point. But if you think he wasn't a true child of God, you'd be wrong. Because we actually have scripture that tells us about Lot's spiritual state. 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9 says this, And if God rescued, notice, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If that is true, if God rescued him, the sentence goes, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The insinuation here is that Lot is among the godly. So what is going on here? Is it possible that Lot could be a righteous person, yet inch his way towards Sodom and later dwell in Sodom and even find a prominent place in the city of Sodom? R. Kent Hughes answers yes to this question in an important book he wrote several years ago called Set Apart, Calling a Worldly Church to a Godly Life. Hughes says, ironically, though Lot was revolted by Sodom, Sodom was in his soul. It is possible then for a believer, he says, to be distressed by the world while willfully clinging to the world. I wonder if that can describe any of us in some way this morning. Yes, we see the wickedness of the world. Yes, we know that we should love God with all our heart and not be distracted by the affluence and prestige and even the sins of the world. In fact, we're grieved by what we see in the world. We light up when people talk about it. Yeah, we know it's getting so bad. And what, the, what is the future going to be? And yet there are things about this world we cannot imagine living without. And truth be told, we often gravitate to those things rather than to God. So we ignore how wicked the world is and sometimes even participate in those behaviors for which the world is going to judgment. Hughes says, Lot had mastered the craft of turning a blind eye and deaf ear to the social and sexual abuses of Sodom. He didn't practice them. He didn't approve of them. He loathed them. But he lived as close to the world as he could, hanging on to it for dear life until the bitter end. And the result was that though God judged all of Sodom except for Lot and his daughters, Sodom was reborn in their very lives. This is profound. He says, we see then that it is possible for believing people like us who are truly distressed by the course of this world to live lives that are so profoundly influenced by culture that Sodom is born in the lives, it's reborn in the lives of those we love most. In other words, you might think that as long as you appreciate the wickedness of the world, as long as you remain horrified by it, then a little love for the sin of the world is not going to make things much different. That's not the way God sees it. 
But even if you were right about that, even if you could hold both intention, your spouse might not be able to make that distinction. And your children will certainly not be able to make that distinction. The Bible's call to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength on the one hand, but making allowances for some sins or competing loves on the other. We can try to hold a love for God and a love for Babylon in tension, but Babylon will take root in the hearts of those whom we most influence. And it's probably also taken root in our own hearts more than we know. That is how we take part in the sins of Babylon. It begins when we share in fellowship with the temporal things and sins of Babylon, when we hold values and loves in common with the citizens of Babylon, and then we allow that love to draw us away from our deepening love for God. Now, there's a third question which follows. We can see how we would take part in the sins of Babylon, but how would we share in her plagues? lest you share in her plagues, he says. Now, we don't have all morning, so I'm going to move quickly here. The truth is, if you're going to share the life of an unbeliever in the world, then you are also going to share the results of that life in some way. For example, if you're going to share the world's trust in riches and earthly wealth and to give meaning to your life, you're also going to share the same despair and emptiness that eventually earthly wealth brings to you. So how does a genuine believer share in the judgment that is mentioned here? Is this verse suggesting that you can be a genuine believer, a member of the Lord's people, my people, he says, and still face eternal judgment if you don't turn from sin? No, I don't think so at all. I think that would be against the theology of, of, of the scripture. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear on this point. God rescues his people from judgment. That's what it means to be a believer. Now, God may discipline us because he loves us. He may correct us so that we get back on the path of his will, but true believers will never face eternal wrath. However, your faithfulness to God, your love for him, And your desire to keep yourself pure from the sin of the world is the evidence that you truly belong to the Lord. If you are walking in sin and a lack of love for God, I I would not say to you, because I'm not a heart knower, I don't know your story. I don't, I don't, internally, only you and God know. But I would never say to you, I know you're not really a believer. I can tell he's not saved. I, I would never make that statement. Even if I thought for sure, I would be right. I would be foolish to go around thinking that. But, but I would tell you without hesitation that if you are walking in sin, you do not have any reason to think that you are a believer because of a lack of the evidence that the Bible says we should see in our lives if we are really, truly saved. If you're not walking with the Lord you do not have any reason to think that you are not going to join the rest of the unbelieving world in facing the wrath of God. And we need to be saying that with love and grace for people in the world. And the coming judgment of God on the sin of the world, like we read of in Revelation, should cause us to fear, even as a believer, it should cause us to fear and come out from among the sins of the world and cling to God 
and learn to love him. Now, one final question. He says, come out of her, my people. How do we come out of Babylon? Because the last time I checked, we're living in Babylon. I'm not saying that what we're going through right now is the Babylon is talking about the tribulation period, but we can see a lot of things about Babylon that are true of our world. We're living here. We can't escape. And if we're going to rescue the people of Babylon, we have to know the people in Babylon. We have to live among them and build relationships with them. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He says, not at all meaning that sexually immoral people of this world, or or Babylon, we could say, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world if you weren't going to associate with those people. Paul, in the context, is talking about in the church protecting the table protecting the integrity of the Lord by not fellowshipping in the church with people who are obviously not believers because they need to be rescued. And so he's saying, don't associate with immoral people in the church. In other words, they need to be separated until they come to genuine faith in Christ. But he says, I'm not talking about the immoral people of the world because you have to get off the planet and that's impossible. So the Lord's cry to come out of Babylon cannot mean that we physically have to flee the city that we should isolate ourselves and the people of Babylon and form some kind of Christian commune where we only know believers. We only fellowship with believers. We only go to businesses that are run by believers. And all of that, we have this little bubble we move around in that's only full of believers. This is not how Jesus lived and ministered. It's not. And it is not how, what he's asking us to do either. This is how Jesus famously phrases it in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He's praying about his disciples, and his disciples mean you and me if you read the whole prayer. The disciples of that day and the disciples that were going to come from their witness. Jesus said to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil, or as it says in the ESV here, the evil one. It could go either way. It's a uh, adjective. It could be used as an uh, evil one or just evil, the evil stuff. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus was not of the world and yet he was here fellowshipping, eating with sinners. But he was not of the world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to set apart, to come away from. This is Jesus' distinction that we are to be in the world, living in the world, building relationships in the world, but we are not to take part in the world's values, the world's affections, the world's sins. You know, as the world slips further away from God and the church is tempted to follow at a distance, there is this philosophy that Christians should participate in the world's sin so that we can be more attractive to the world, so they'll listen to us. I mean, we, we think we have to do something to crank up the power of the gospel because it's not powerful enough on its own. I mean, we want them to be comfortable and we want them to feel like we're one of them, so they'll listen to our message. But that makes no sense whatsoever. How can we seriously urge them to flee from the wrath to come when we are participating in the same sin upon which that wrath is coming? We would send, we would, we would uh, 
send a message to them that, that sounded just like Lot sounded to his future sons-in-law when he urged them to leave Sodom. Yet some are telling us that we need to be down in the pit of Babylon with them so we can relate to them. When what the Bible says is that we need to be standing outside the pit in the light so that we can help them come out. Only those who are in the light, who are trying to follow the Lord, know what is really going on so we can help others. Let's pray that God will allow us to rescue some people from this world through the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's also pray that we can accomplish this mission while heeding the warning that the Lord gives to us to come out of. Babylon. I know I speak for all of our membership when I say we desire to be a loving church, a gospel-preaching church, a witnessing church, a discipling church. But by God's grace, may we also be a holy church set apart from the world unto God, uncompromising, unstained by the Babylonian culture of our time so that we can clearly urge the people of Babylon to flee from the wrath to come and do it lovingly and to the glory of God. Father, we're...